Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here again, and I uh, hope that you are... Uh, so for those of you who went to the festival yesterday, that you've recovered. Uh, we got home, we were thoroughly exhausted after a hot, windy and, uh, and long day, but praise the Lord. Um, there were some great discussions that were had, and the gospel was shared, and Bibles were given out, and the Lord was magnified. If you have your Bibles with, with, uh, with you, turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. As we continue our look um, at the uh, dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. Daniel chapter 2, verse 35. Verse 34 and 35, sorry. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. Read with me. Thou sawest, till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this time. We can look into your word and I pray that even now your spirit will be working on our hearts, that we might receive it and grow thereby. Father, I pray that our attention would be wholly given once again to the teaching of your spirit this morning. And I pray that you would use me for that purpose. We thank you once again. For your precious word. We thank you that you've preserved it for us, that we can trust every word within it, and that you have brought us together in this place that we might worship and adore you because of who you are and because of what you have done for us. We pray this morning that the name of our Saviour would be lifted up in this place, that he'd be glorified and magnified in our hearts and in our thoughts. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. We have seen over the past weeks, and I'll give a little bit of a recap for those of you who are visiting for the first time or um, don't know uh, what we've been uh, talking about. We've been looking at the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and that's found in Daniel chapter 2. And we're coming towards the end of that particular dream, where the king uh, dreamed of a statue. And that statue had a head of gold and, and a chest and arms of silver and a waist of brass, uh, legs of iron and then feet that were mixed of iron and clay. Um, and we, we've been looking at what that has meant uh, over, the, uh, over the, the history of mankind. And that, that image or that statue that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about was representative of basically four empires that would rule the world. Okay, and, the, and it started with his empire. And Daniel says that, King, you are that head of gold. And so the head of gold was representative of King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And the next empire that came around was the Medo-Persian Empire uh, with Cyrus the Great. And that was, that was uh, succeeded by uh, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, which, which ruled the whole world. And then that was replaced by the Roman Empire, which existed at the time that Jesus uh, was in Jerusalem and walked the earth. And now we've come to the part of the actual um, uh, dream where a stone, the Bible says, that, that was cut without hands, smote the image on its feet 
and destroys the whole image. The whole, the whole thing crumbles and turns basically to dust. That's the picture that we get here where it says that it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, so where, they, where the wheat was, uh, was sifted and only the chaff was left, which is the outside husk, which was useless, and the wind just blew it away. And that was representative of, or that is representative of, what would happen to the earthly kingdoms when this stone comes and breaks everything. Okay. So we saw the progression from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, and we've looked also last week at what the ten toes represented and that mix of clay and iron, which is representative of a revived Roman Empire, which the world is heading pretty much headlong into at the moment. Um, actually, we are at uh, the Faulkner Festa. Um, I don't know if you guys uh, appreciate what a veritable um, biblical wonderland we live in. Okay? We spoke yesterday to, a, to a, a, a few people, and one of them was a, was a lady who I picked up her accent. And, I, and when she started speaking, and she was, she was a local in the area, I said, you're a Syrian, right? And she said, yes, I'm a Syrian. I said, you're the Assyrian from the Bible. She goes, yes. I said, your people made a lot of trouble. <laughs> she goes, yes, we did. And we had a bit of a laugh about that. But there are Assyrians, so the biblical Assyrians that lived in, in, in the Bible times, okay, in, uh, in the Old Testament times, are living in Faulkner. Last year we met with Chaldeans. Okay? Now, Chaldeans are the same as the Babylonians. Okay? So the, the same people, the same language that King Nebuchadnezzar um, had. Remember how the, the, the scripture says in, uh, in chapter 2 of Daniel that he called the, his Chaldeans, he called the, the wise men? Well, the Chaldeans are living in Faulkner. Okay? And then there are Lebanese that live in Faulkner. There are a whole, the whole uh, plethora of different biblical uh, nationalities or nations that existed once but don't exist now. There's no Assyrian nation now. The Assyrians are still identify themselves as Assyrians and they live in the north of Iraq. The Persians, there's no Persia now, is there? Most of the Persians now live in what is called modern-day Iran. Okay, they're Persians. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the Babylonians also are primarily from Iraq as well. Actually, um, what's his name? Saddam Hussein, when he was in power, tried to, he wanted to revive the Babylonian Empire. Okay, and he actually wanted the, 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 the Babylon as a city is still there, although it's totally over, over, overrun with weeds and everything, and no one lives there. And his desire, before he was overthrown, was to rebuild that, that city to its, its grandeur and splendour. And he wanted to be the next Nebuchadnezzar. Well, God has other plans. Men have, have their plans and their dreams, and God has other plans. And as we see now, um, the world is rushing headlong into a world government. Okay, uh, not, a, not a year goes by that another step isn't taken towards this, this one world government. And it's happening so quickly that I believe that the rapture is probably not too far away. If we consider in our lifetime, in my, in my lifetime, um, how the world has changed. Two world wars have happened in, 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 literally, in literally two generations, which have changed the face of the entire world and the United Nations and the G20 that's meeting in, uh, in Brisbane uh, next week uh, are the results of those conflicts, in, in a sense. 
says, what they did is they created the United Nations because of the conflicts that happened in the past. But in doing that, they're all pushing towards a one-world government. Actually, an interesting thing to note is that the G20, which are the 20 um, most, not well, I say powerful, they're the largest in e economies of the world. They represent about 85% of the world's entire economy, okay, are meeting in Australia. And Australia is part of that particular group. And that, that group meets every year and all their financial um, uh, people get together from all over the world and they work out how they can better cooperate and, and work together and, and improve the economies of the world. What's interesting about that is that um, Australia has a representative, you know, America has a representative, um, a number of other countries have representatives, but you know how many representatives Europe has? One. So when it comes to Greece and Spain and Portugal and all those different countries that encompass things, they have one representative. Well, what we do know, what we do know is that one day the whole world will be represented by ten kings. Okay? And those ten kings, as we saw in last week's sermon, will give their allegiance to the Antichrist. And there will be one world leader. And it will not come with, uh, without a struggle or without wars. But uh, in, those, in those days, the Bible says, this stone will come and smite the image on its feet and destroy the whole system and usher in a new government. Now, the Bible considers those ten kings so important, okay, or the time of those ten kings so important, that it's mentioned at least three times in the Bible, in three separate places. Okay? Um, Nebuchadnezzar pictures them as ten toes. Daniel has a vision later on, and, and they're represented as ten horns. And then the Apostle uh, John has another vision of a beast, and that, which also has ten horns. So these, these ten uh, kings, the Bible says, um, are, occur a number of times. So they must be significant enough for God to mention them a number of times. And Revelation chapter 17 gives the, 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 the meaning of those horns. It actually says, Revelation 17, 12 says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet. So in John's days, they hadn't received a kingdom, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. One hour. For a very, very short time, these guys have power with the, with the Antichrist. The Bible says that many Antichrists have gone out into the world, but there will come one day the Antichrist who will embody that whole spirit of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and will be in a position of power in the world. Remember, the Bible also teaches that there are many devils, but there is only one devil. When it mentions it in plural, it refers to demons in the King James. If it mentions a devil, it's referring to Satan himself. The Bible also says that many false prophets have gone out into the world, but it says that one day one false prophet will come who will give his allegiance and support the Antichrist. And this occurs in the tribulation or during the tribulation period. Now, Daniel, if you go down to verse 44 in chapter 2 of Daniel, 
It says that in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Actually, while, what I need to explain to you as well is yesterday. One reason we look forward to the Faulkner Festival is that last year we had the opportunity to be able to share our faith with a number of different people at a table um, with Muslims and, and Buddhists and that, and we were able to share our faith with them. This year we are looking forward to the same thing, but they changed the format. So what they did is they actually they created a, um, uh, a project to do where all the different people of different faiths would... would they designed a tree, and each of us had to put our piece of what we believe on that tree. Guess what we all did? And we were the, probably the biggest group there. We walked out. Um, and the other thing that happened at that meeting, which, which none of us really participated in, was they, they, they brought in a, a troop of people where they sang, and they, they, they wrote a song, and the only word in that song was peace. But the word peace was given, was, was sung in a number of different languages. And while they were singing, we could see that other people were singing along and trying to, trying to uh, think, but none of us sang. And there was a reason none of us could sing that song. It's because how can you sing a song of peace when you know the person next to you is going to hell? There is no peace in that situation. The only peace that comes in the world will, that the world... Um, when they will experience true peace, is when Christ comes to this earth. The only peace a person can have is when they meet Jesus Christ and he gives them peace, the Prince of Peace. So none of us sang that particular song along with, with them. And then when it came time to do the actual, um, to do the actual uh, project, we just sort of wandered slowly or quietly just wandered out. Well, I had the opportunity to, to go back into that room later on um, I purposely left my glasses and, and a few things in there because I wanted to go back and explain to them why. I didn't want to be rude, and I wanted to say to, her, to, say to the lady who was running the whole thing, um, listen, we, the, the reasons we didn't feel comfortable doing those things they asked us to do, and she was actually very, very understanding. She goes, I understand. But I also had the chance to explain to her that how can we sing along? How can we, how can we put our part in this tree of what they call the tree of faith when we have this, not, not the same roots? It's a totally different foundation. This is a different tree. Where, and she said, oh, that's fair enough if, you, if that's what you believe. And then I had to explain to her that one of the reasons that we couldn't do that is that we thought that most of them were going to hell. Now, she, that, that floored her. That completely floored her, that statement. She goes, you, you're saying that I'm going to hell? I said, in all likelihood you are. And I said, and most of the people in this room are. So we can't sing songs of peace and joy when our hearts are broken because you, you have no salvation. So then we had a chance to talk and there was a witch that was listening. <laughs> right? There was a Wiccan. She, she described herself as a Wiccan. And I was, she, the, the, the coordinator was asking me, what sort of Baptist are you? And I said, we're independent Baptists. She goes, but I know Baptists. I said, no, you don't know us. Um, we're an independent Baptist church, and we believe what the Bible teaches. And she goes, but doesn't the Bible... And then another lady came into the conversation, and she said, oh, doesn't Jesus say that everyone's going to heaven? I said, no. So, even out of difficult, 
situations and uncomfortable situations, we can also still make uh, opportunities to share the gospel, as difficult as it is sometimes. So I left them with that information. But to let you know, the reason that whole thing is on is because the World Council of Churches works through the local councils to try to unify religions together. So what she did at the beginning of it was to hold up a Quran and a Bible and she says, you know how many things are, in, are common in these two things? She was trying to relate those two books as if they were somehow the same. And she said, oh, look, all the prophets that are in the Bible are in the Quran. Might be mentioned in the Quran, but they're not in there. None of their words are recorded. None of their acts are recorded. So there's two totally different things. So there is, a, there is not, just, not just a desire to bring this world into a one-world government situation, but to, but to push this world into one-world religion. That's happening around us, and it's everywhere at the moment. Okay, let's go back to, um, let's go back to our verse. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kings, and it shall stand... Forever. Do you know the Jews, when Jesus came to the earth, when Jesus was born and he presented himself as the Messiah, had a very difficult time understanding why or what he was doing. There was a huge division among them because they knew the Bible had certain prophecies about the Messiah and what would happen when he came. He was meant to come as the king. He was meant to overthrow all these worldly empires and he was meant to take up his throne on that, you know, in Jerusalem and rule the world. And Jesus was saying, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to die. And they, couldn't, they could not make sense of the fact that he had to come as a suffering servant. And how that suffering servant could be the same as the Messiah who they were waiting for to restore all things. I mean, they knew that he would, that he would present himself on a donkey and ride triumphantly into Jerusalem. And he did that. They knew that he would be born of the royal lineage of David and that he would be a future king. And he was that. They knew that he had to be born in Bethlehem. And he was. In fact, no one else in history can even come close to satisfying all the prophecies about the Messiah. Like Jesus. He fulfilled every one of them. But they failed to see that he would suffer and die for the sins of the world and have to come back a second time. Turn to John chapter 7 with me. I want to, give you, I want to show you a passage that, that shows the conflicts they had within themselves when they heard him teach, when they, they saw him preach. John chapter 7 verse 40 to 43. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, that Jesus has presented himself and he actually starts teaching in the temple and talking about the kingdom of God. And they said, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said, this Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. You see, Jesus lived in Galilee. So when he presented himself as a possible Messiah to them, they were thinking, hang on a sec, the Messiah is meant to come out of Bethlehem. They didn't realize that he was born in Bethlehem but grew up in Galilee. 
So they, they couldn't quite understand how the whole thing was working. They knew certain things had to be true about the Messiah, but Jesus confused them. He wasn't so concerned about earthly power, but with serving. And even his own disciples struggled with that idea. Mind you, after being three years with him, even as he was on his way to Jerusalem to be, to be crucified, they still struggled with the idea. Turn to Mark chapter 10 with me. Now, Jesus is, they're walking on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus straightforwardly tells them, I'm going there to die. Is that fair enough? Would you, would you struggle? Would you get confused with that sort of thing? Well, these guys did. Because in verse 33 it says, Mark chapter 10, 33, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. That was the Romans. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And John and James, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou should do us for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit on thy right hand, and on the other, on the left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what ye ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Now notice something here. Apart from the fact that these guys totally missed the point, they were on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus basically tells them he's going to be handed over to the Romans, he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified, and he's going to rise on the third day. These guys weren't, it was almost like he had said nothing to them. All they were worried about was, oh, who's going to, when you get to Jerusalem, who's going to sit on your right and left hand? And he said, that, that's not mine to give. But notice he tells them, he doesn't say to them, it will never happen. He's, he, he, with, his, with his response, he doesn't correct them and say, no, 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 I'm never going to rule and no one's going to sit on my left and right hand. Instead, he says, that's not mine to give. So one day he will be ruling in Jerusalem and there will be one who sits on his left and his right hand. Jesus never corrects them about the future kingdom he actually reinforces the future kingdom, but not for that time. He came to die for the sins of the world. But you know something interesting? Is that when he went to Jerusalem and he was crucified, he did have someone on the left and someone on the right hand. And they were two thieves. So the first time he came, he did have, on the left and on the right, he had thieves, people who were criminals. And he was crucified amongst criminals. But the day he comes back, when he comes back, he will sit on the throne. He won't have a criminal on the left and right hand side. Daniel 2.34. Let's go through these two, two verses. 
It says there, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, let's, let's, what, what are we to make of a stone cut out without hands? Interesting, isn't it? Well, think of a statue. All right? Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue. How are statues made? Statues are made by the hands of men. Idols are made by the hands of men. And they carve and they mould and they do whatever they have to do to get the image looking right. This, on the other hand, was nothing that's man-made. This stone was without hands. And that's the basic thought that's, that's conveyed in this, particular, in this particular thing. It's not the same as the other metals. It's something that's totally different. And it's not man-made. Actually, something interesting to note. When the Jews... When God gave instructions for the Jews when they were in the, in the wilderness and they were, were to set up a, um, a, an altar and sacrifice on that altar, they weren't to use any stone that was cut by hand. It had to be a natural stone. Turn with me, if you want to have a quick look there, Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. Sorry, Exodus 20, 25. The Lord gives instructions here about the making of an altar. And it says in verse 25, If thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. Now that means cut stone, Okay. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. You've ruined it. God doesn't want the hands of men um, involved in the things of heaven. You see, you know when they build an altar on the earth, when God gave instructions to build an altar on, on the earth, do you know it's, it's a representation of the altar where? In heaven. Did you know there's an altar in heaven? An altar for sacrifice. And when God gave instruction to build the tabernacle and the temple, do you know that there is a temple in heaven? A temple. And God gave instructions for men to build a temple on earth as a representation of the temple that's in heaven. And when they built an altar on the earth, it was meant to be a representation of the altar in heaven. Anything we make on the earth is but a shadow of what's in heaven. Anything that are made by these hands are nowhere near what God has already made in heaven. These verses teach that one day, in the days of these ten kings, that a stone that is not crafted by the hands or the thoughts of men shall come crashing down upon the feet of this image which represents all these worldly empires and will destroy it forever. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken to pieces together and becomes like the chaff of a summer threshing floor, and the wind carries it away. All the power, all the might, the prestige of these earthly empires will be ground to dust and will fly away in the wind. This is a one-time earth-shattering event. 
that will occur. This is not a gradual event that will take place. This is a one-time event that will smash, finally, the grip of men on this earth and the power of men upon the earth. But the question is, what will replace them? What will replace the kingdoms of men or the empires of men? Well, it says that the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone that destroys the earthly kingdoms and replaces them by filling the entire earth with a new kingdom. A kingdom not ruled by men with the ambitions of men, but by Jesus Christ himself when he returns for the second time. In his second coming, all the prophecies concerning the messianic rule of Christ will be fulfilled. All the promises that the Jews said, hang on a sec, but he's meant to be doing this, that and the other, are all going to be fulfilled at that one time and shall be completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is that stone that comes and breaks all those kingdoms and, and takes up his rightful rule upon this earth. And his kingdom, the Bible says, shall fill the entire earth and will usher in what we call, what we understand, is the millennial kingdom. Let's see how Daniel sees that glorious day when Christ takes up his rightful place on his throne. Now remember that this event, the second coming of Christ, occurs at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. It occurs during a time that will be the, the most difficult time this earth has ever faced. And it's spoken of in the Bible and answers the question that the disciples were asking in Matthew chapter 24. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 24 so we understand what we're actually speaking about here. Matthew chapter 24 verse 15. Remember, this whole series of, of uh, sermons is about the Olivet Discourse where the disciples went to Jesus and said, Lord, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus is answering that question. So Matthew 24, 15 says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now remember, this, this request is made by Jews and Jesus is answering the Jews. That's why this whole thing is focused about around Jerusalem, Judea and the Jews. Okay, He says to them, Let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now, why would it be the Sabbath day anyway if they weren't for Jews? For then shall be great tribulation. This is referring to the second half of the seven-year period, beginning right, right at the middle of that seven-year time when the Antichrist flips. He goes from being a nice guy, he goes to, he goes to being a, an absolute terror. And he, he announces that he is God. For the Bible says there in verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. 
But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Okay? So it's a brief period in history which will be absolutely intense in terms of its devastation. Now go to verse 27. It says, for, and the Lord says here, For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And look what it says here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man coming in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You know what that's referring to? That's referring to when that stone starts flying in. When that stone starts coming down and is about to destroy the, the empires of the world, it happens at one particular time in history, at an epic battle that takes place. And we'll look about, a little bit more about that in a moment. It comes with an epic battle that we call Armageddon. And it happens in and around Jerusalem, in Judea. Okay? It happens in a specific place, and we'll look at that in a, in, in, a, in a moment. But turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, because Daniel also sees a similar event, and he, and he sees, and he gives a wonderful description of it as well. Daniel describes it this way, in verse, chapter 7, verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down. You know those thrones, what they are? Those ten kings that were existing in those days, or that will exist in those days. The thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, Thousands, thousands, sorry, thousand, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I beheld, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, uh, that was the Antichrist, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Daniel sees the same thing. Daniel sees Christ coming and returning. There is an epic battle where the, the Antichrist and the final beast is utterly destroyed and the Lord takes his throne on the earth. And it's interesting that he also mentions that he will come with the... And it, actually, it's interesting that Daniel says... He calls him one like the Son of Man, sitting or coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel is a long way before Jesus was born. 
But Jesus, one of Jesus' favourite terms for himself was the Son of Man. The reason the stone must break the statue in a cataclysmic event is that the dominion must be taken away. It must be taken away by force. And it will be taken away by force. It happens at that final battle we call Armageddon. And guess who else prophesied about exactly the same thing? The prophet Joel. Joel expresses this and explains it in great detail. And as we read this, I want you to notice how how closely it aligns with Jesus' description that we read in Matthew chapter 24. Turn to Joel chapter 3 verse 9 with me. Joel chapter 3 verse 9. Page 575 in your Bibles. It's a minor prophet towards the end, towards the end of the Old Testament. Now, before we read this passage, I'm just going to read again what Jesus said in verse 29 of chapter 24 of Matthew. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So they're Jesus' words. Okay. Now look at how Joel describes this because God gave Joel the same vision. Proclaim this, proclaim, sorry, ye, this among the Gentiles. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into, into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. This is the final battle again that now Joel is describing. This aligns exactly with what Jesus is telling us in Matthew. It aligns exactly to what Daniel is saying to what John the Apostle says, to what Isaiah the prophet also says. This is the final single event that throws down the thrones of this world and Jesus will come in power and great glory. You notice something. He came as the lamb, but he will return as the lion. 
He came in meekness, but he will come back in power. Those two images are what the Bible presents to us in the Old Testament about the Messiah. The Jews struggled with this whole idea because how do you reconcile these two animals in one? And it was because he came back two separate times. Okay? The valley of Jehoshaphat is where multitudes upon multitudes will come for that final battle. And it's, the, it's what the scriptures call here the valley of decision. An enormous battle that will overthrow all the earthly kingdoms. And the valley of decision is the final scene of judgment and, and what will happen at that time will change the world forever. The Bible says here that Jesus shall roar out, of, out as a lion out of Zion from Jerusalem and Jesus will be the saviour of his people Israel. You see, we believe at this particular time that the Bible says even though Israel has a veil in front of their eyes and most of the Jews do not believe in Christ, that at that particular time when they've been betrayed by the one who they think is the Messiah and the world is still waiting for this Messiah, even the, the Muslims are waiting for the Messiah to come, okay? that they will realise they've been betrayed and realise and understand that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and the Bible says there will be a revival there will be an awakening among them and they will turn to Christ with all their heart. And in that time, the Lord will defend his people. And when the battle is over and the smoke clears, there will be a time of judgment and also a time of restoration in this world. The world will be transformed from an absolute... If you think about what's going to happen during the tribulation period, it isn't going to be a pretty place. The Bible says that the seas will die, die, that most of the plant life will be burned up, that the rivers will be poisoned, and there will have been an absolute monumental uh, war that has taken place around the world, and it will take them months and months just to bury the dead. That's how bad it's going to be. But the Bible also teaches that a, a day will come straight after that or soon after that where the Lord will actually restore the world to almost like an Eden-like uh, state. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 11, verse Isaiah describes millennial kingdom as a time of peace and justice, and this is what it will look like. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, that's Christ, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall, shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion and the, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed together. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's your stone that fills the entire earth. There's your mountain. That's God's mountain that covers the entire world. And the Lord says that no one shall be hurt in his holy mountain, which shall span the world from from coast to coast, from top to bottom. Here is your stone that smites the statue and replaces it with the kingdom kingdom of God upon the earth. This is the mountain of righteousness. This is a perfect world, a perfect government, a perfect king. But how will man respond? How will man respond to a perfect (coughs) environment, a perfect king and a perfect government? We'll find that about that a little bit next week. But to close, I want to read you something. Luke chapter 20, verse 17 says this, And he beheld them and said, What is then? What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, shall grind him to powder. That's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone, the Bible says. Jesus is the foundation of God's kingdom. The Bible simply says that if you will fall upon the stone, you will be broken. You know, part of the gospel, part of the, part of the thing we struggle with when we share the gospel is to tell people that they're sinners and they're worthy to go to hell. That lady came up to me in that, um, in that meeting and she said, doesn't Jesus say that we're all going to heaven? Now, what in her mind made her believe that she was going to heaven? She believed that she was good enough. In fact, if we go out and, and, and survey 100 people out there, almost 100 will say they're good enough to go to heaven. The reason is that man never sees his own sin. Man struggles to see his iniquity and the depths that he has within him. We forget when we make mistakes. We forget that we've sinned against God. We forget that we fail to put him first in our lives. But then we make excuses for ourselves. And then we begin to judge ourselves by each other. We, bend, we begin to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good compared to the rest of you guys. But I'm not. Because the Bible teaches very, very clearly that we are all sinners before God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and we all deserve hell. We all deserve it. There is not one who is righteous. There is not one who has not turned away. In fact, we have it as part of our, our inbred nature that we are enemies of God and we love ourselves more than God and we will always choose ourselves before him until God comes plants a new nature within us. But before that can happen, the Bible says we must fall down upon that stone and be broken. You will never come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. You will never accept the sacrifice he's made for you and embrace him as your saviour and as your Lord if you don't think you need him. 
If you think you're good enough to get to heaven on your own terms and on your own efforts, you will never allow yourself to be broken on him. But the Bible says we must. That's what the whole meaning of repentance is. That we fall before God and understand how sinful we actually are. And the Bible says this is a picture of us falling on Jesus Christ and being broken before him. The Bible says that God will lift up the humble, but he will bring down the proud. And in the end, if a person hasn't allowed themselves to be broken before the Lord, then God will bring them down another way. Because their hearts are too proud. So the Apostle Peter, and I'll I'll just close with this admonition from the Apostle Peter. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so, be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. That stone... Is living. And if you fall, allow yourself to fall on that stone, be broken before him and accept what he's done for you, the Bible says that you'll become a living stone. And that God will start to, God is building a house. Now one day that house will be complete and God will be glorified through that structure. But if you don't allow yourself to be broken now, the Bible says that you will be broken. You will be broken. And the Bible says that if you don't fall on the stone first, then the only other alternative is that stone falls on you. The Bible says that if that were to happen, you'll be ground to powder. Just like the kingdoms of this world will be ground to powder and dust and will vanish away. Don't wait if you don't know Jesus Christ today. Don't waste another moment. If you are not sure if you're going to heaven, if you're not sure that you have being broken before him and accepted his sacrifice, if you don't know him personally as your saviour, don't leave that door today before you come and talk to me or someone else. Allow yourself to be broken and you'll find there's no better place to be.